0: All right, are you ready to finish out Job today? All right, let's do that. Let me start with a word of prayer, then we'll get going. Our Lord, thank you so much for this weekend. It has been a rich blessing to our souls to be able to listen to the Word of God taught and to know you even that much more, to be reminded of truths that we are very much familiar with but to deepen our understanding of these things and that encourages our faith it strengthens our convictions and we need that especially in an, at a time when we live in a society that does not one, often believe that you exist or two, if they do, they don't believe that Jesus is really truly God and we now know, if we didn't already know, how important it is to know that Jesus is truly God. If anything, it affects our worship, that we we worship Jesus Christ because he is God. And we saw that so plainly communicated in your truth, in your word this weekend. We thank you for that. We pray that you would bless our time together and um, give us uh, mental strength after a long and busy weekend uh, to... Uh, Understand and apprehend the truths from this important book here at the beginning of the Bible. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, last time what we talked about is the who, the where, the when, and the why of Job. Okay, this is setting up the background for the book. We talked about the who. You remember what the author, who I argue the author is of Job? Elihu, yes, exactly. Elihu is what I would argue is the author of the book. There's just it's hard. It would seem way too coincidental that you've got so much information on Elihu all of a sudden and he pops out of nowhere. He has a very classic cameo appearance all of a sudden into the book. The audience, again, what I would argue for the audience would be probably the world at this point. This is a book that's supposed to be Cross-cultural, perhaps even uh, opportunities to translate it into multiple languages, and it would may have been a little bit easier to do so because it borrows from multiple languages in the book. Uh, fast forward, see further down the road when we get to Ecclesiastes in a couple years. So uh, Ecclesiastes does a very similar thing. <coughs> so that would be the who. We talked about the when. Now for conservative scholarship and and, uh, for those of us in conservative evangelical camps we don't disagree on the win in terms of the, uh, the, the events of the book the events pretty much conclusively we would all say in conservative camps this was a very early time period that this happened I would argue that it also was written very early as well it was written around the time after I would say probably Job died but it was probably written by Elihu after the fact and I got this question afterwards. It was a great question. But would Elihu, because Job lived a long time, right? So would Elihu would still have been alive? Yeah, he probably would have been. Because he was younger than all of the individuals there. As you may recall in Job chapter 32, it talks about, I am letting the aged one speak first. God, it was not my place to speak uh, words before those who are older than me, but now I see that, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but now I see that wisdom really comes from God and not just from people who are old, right? And that's, a, that's an important point in the book, actually. It's an it's a important statement that Ellie, who's making that is really a key cornerstone to the book. Wisdom doesn't just come from people just because they're old. Just because they've had a lot of life experience, wisdom comes from God alone. You have to have God reveal truth to you for that to be the case. In terms of the location, this is uh, it takes place in the land of Uz, or as I said last week, is pronounced Uts uh, in Hebrew, and um, it's really setting up uh, in a stage where uh, you don't really have really any of the Bible yet written at this point. So that's the kind of the context of this, and people. In terms of their understanding of God, it is, um, it is based upon uh, experiences that they may have, which did happen back in those days. That they actually had revelation that comes from God, but it wasn't the kind of revelation that would stay in, um, like in the inspired word. but it could have been legitimate revelation that came from God. But it was so sparse and so few, uh, and it was hard to discern what was truly from God and what was not. In fact, Eliphaz, early on, talks about an experience that he has where he was communicated, he thought, from God. But it seems kind of clear in the text that may not have been from God, but that was some kind of a deceiving spirit. And so there's just a lot of, there's a lack of clarity on truth and revelation from God. And, and so obviously, again, setting up for the fact, why do we need the Bible a clear historical account of God's communication that cannot be, uh, cannot be refuted by those in its time. That these things actually were accompanied by signs and wonders and by miracles that could not be refuted uh, and established by a nation of Israel and then consistent from beginning to end. We need that because now we know this is truly from God himself. <clears throat> so that was the where. And then as I put up here on the screen the why, and I've tried to bold these a little bit, at least for now, until we can um, change the projector a little bit, maybe move it back, make it bigger or something like that. But hopefully, this will be a little bit clearer for you. If not, um, I'll try to read it off the screen or something so you can uh, get some clarity there. But we talked about who is the true enemy. That was one of the themes of Job. Remember, Job, the, the name actually means enemy. That's <laughs> such a funny name to name your child. Enemy! You're my enemy. Uh, early on in life, I guess you could say that may be the case, because uh, they're always crying, and um, yeah, they feel like an enemy sometimes, but um, that's that's kind of the theme of the book, and that happens with a lot of authors and books in the Bible, in which the author's name is kind of the um, it, it kind of runs a motif through the book. Who is the real enemy? Is it God, or is it Job? And that's why there's this debate going on back and forth. Uh, Who is man that you regard him, that you put your eye upon him? I put up there that you spy on him because he, Job has this negative connotation to the idea that God is um, looking upon him, but it's almost for his uh, disadvantage. Why are you looking upon me and, and pouring so much of your focus and attention upon me? I wish that you would stop because it's hurting me and I'm suffering because of it. Who? Why? Who is man? And then we talked about how that, that connects with Psalm and how with now David with more revelation, actually says this is actually such a blessing that God would put his his eye upon us. It's such a blessing because He regards man and blesses man. Uh, another question in the book: How can man be made right with God? Uh, and it's we, we we circle back on that as well as. Um, going to Romans 3 and showing how this is now fulfilled in the gospel. But the questions that Job has because of the suffering are so intense that he reaches to some of the most important questions that we all should be asking, which is, how can man be made right with God? And that's exactly what the gospel is going to answer. And then finally, where can wisdom be found? And ultimately, we talked about how wisdom is found uh, in the fear of the Lord. You're waiting on the edge of your seat for God to reveal himself. That is the fear of the Lord. And that is where wisdom can be found. And Proverbs chapter 2 makes that abundantly clear as well. Again, where Solomon has more divine revelation and it's more clear at that point. But it, with Job, he's starting to tap into this more than he ever has before. Very interesting. And we finally concluded and said, okay, here's kind of a summary statement together for the whole purpose. Job asks the most critical questions From a man in the most severe of suffering to introduce to the world how God will reveal his plan to make man right with him. That is really the purpose of the book. That's helping give you a a fuller perspective of how Job fits into the canon of scripture. Why is Job essential? Because it is the introduction to the Bible. Not that it's less than the Bible. I'm not saying it's not part of the Bible. I'm telling you it's the first book because it's telling you this is why you need revelation from God that is why alright we've talked about the why and now we're going to talk about the how the how so let's talk about some terminology and some themes first off there is a theme of, like we talked about, the word enemy. And it actually appears, and I indicated these instances. These aren't the names of Job, even though that means enemy. But in chapter 13, verse 24, chapter 27, verse 7, chapter 33, verse 10. I just wanted you to note, you don't have to know that, but it's just an interesting fact that the word enemy does actually occur in this book. And it occurs at least three times. Uh, and so. You know, you might want to pay attention at those points because you've got something going on there with enemies and um, God and Job are, are at the center of that. You have the fear of God is, is an important theme. It doesn't occur a ton, but it definitely occurs at some key points, especially the fact that it defines Job at the beginning as one who fears God, but then he realizes I don't fear God as deeply as I thought I did, even though it's true. He does fear God, but The suffering has forced him to go to a level he's never understood before. And chapter 28, verse 28, makes it very clear that that's where he needs to go. Righteousness. Righteousness is another key theme. The righteous one. um, Those who are um, justified or made right. Right? That terminology is used the question is how can a man be made right with god wisdom again these are things we've already talked about wisdom is a key theme in this book it occurs a lot of times in this book this is a book that we would classify as wisdom genre right it's it's a wisdom book it's wisdom literature so it shouldn't be surprising that the word wisdom occurs quite a bit very much like proverbs uses the word wisdom a lot This is an interesting one. This term, oh, that (laughs) this is a key. um, And it's used more in Job than almost uh, other books of the Bible. Um, It literally in the Hebrew reads, who will give, who will give. But that's an idiomatic phrase to say, oh, that this would be the case. Who would give, who would give this to me that this would be the case? In other words, oh, it's, it's basically a wish statement. Oh, that this would be the case. And this is important because this is kind of Job's wish formula. It's Job saying, I wish that I would rise again and meet God and appeal my case to him. So a lot of times you'll see this. Oh, that this would be the case. Pay attention at those points because Job is wishing for something that he doesn't yet have. And he doesn't know if it's actually going to come to reality. But these are wishes, a lot of times, that you see fulfilled in the rest of the Bible. It's incredible. This is, Job is basically wishing for everything that eventually he will get. He will get one day. And then this word that kind of acts as kind of the discourse formula, it kind of breaks out the sections um, into clear markers where they answered. Then Job answered and said, then Eliphaz answered and said. Then Bildad answered and said. And basically, whenever you see that kind of discourse, you know that you've entered into another section, at least a mini-section or something like that. So the answer word is, isn't important. Um, also, there's a lot of puns that occur in this, um, this book, uh, which is fun, and I gave you a couple of them there. Um, play on words, things that sound the same. Uh, it was actually mentioned yesterday. Steve mentioned one. I don't know if you, you heard it in the sermon yesterday, but he was talking about it in Zechariah. There's a, there's a pun there. Um, and uh, that occurs throughout Scripture at some key points. You won't be able to see it in your English Bible, perhaps, but you, you'll see it when you see it in Hebrew at some point. Like, well, if you, whenever you learn Hebrew, right? Uh, so, yeah, I know you're going to do that at some point. But... Uh, but you would see that if you, under, if you see the Hebrew. Like, oh, yeah. That, and it actually kind of sounds interesting. Uh, you can actually hear it in, in the terminology. It's like, wow, that's kind of cool. Uh, which shows you that this is really a book about uh, that's very poetic discourse. Uh, it's all real. It's all historical. But there's, there's poetry going back and forth as they're answering each other. Which means, boy, these are some really intelligent people to do this. Uh, and this is, how, this is how wise and how smart these guys are. Uh, they're not dumb. Again, Job would not be hanging around dumb people, okay? Sometimes we want to slap Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar with the accusation that they're kind of like, well, you guys don't get it. Oh my goodness, Job gets it, but you guys don't get it. No, it's not. It's actually these guys really, really um, are smart, intelligent men. They're some of the smartest men, we would argue, um, on the earth at this time. It's just that they don't have what? They don't have wisdom. They don't have wisdom from God. It's not their fault. That's how God has set it up at this point. But, but their accusations, their assumptions, that's where they go wrong. It's not their intelligence. It's their accusations. It's how they use the information that they had. That's the problem. All right. Let's look at the outline of Job here. This is my outline that I've put together. One, we start with this scene where God is, it, God declares himself right in heaven. That's chapter 1 through chapter 2, basically. God declares himself to be right in the heavenly realm. We see that heavenly scene. And he shows and proves to Satan, I'm right, you're wrong, in two, two, two instances, actually. Uh, but we'll, we'll dig into that more here in a second. Secondly, uh, this is um, basically... Did I put... Oh, yeah, 42. Okay, good. It's wrong on my notes, but up there it's correct. From chapter 3 all the way to the end of the book... God is now right on earth. That's really, you can center this whole book around two points. God is right in heaven. He declares himself to be right in heaven. And then he declares himself to be right on earth. Very important. This is why the rest of the book is written. You know, we tend to focus on chapters 1 and 2 a lot of Job. But why are there so many more chapters in Job? Because that's not the point of the story. Yes, it's important to the story. Chapters 1 and 2 set up for the story. But the real story are the questions and the debate that's going on between the the guys. We need to understand that debate. And God is proving proving himself right in heaven. And then God's going to use this debate to prove himself right on earth. That is how you can structure Job. Now, when you break this down the right on earth aspect. And I'll talk about this more here in a second, but wisdom coming from heaven, the arguments at the beginning from chapter three to 14, focus on wisdom from heaven. In other words, <laughs> and I'm using this again, cause I, I, I did a, some study with um, Dr. Chaus R- Job class. This is where a lot of this actually comes from. Uh, but the, the arguments start in a pre-modern way. So, pre modern arguments, and I'll explain that more in, in a little bit. But pre modern arguments, wisdom from heaven, then wisdom from earth. Modern arguments, okay? The argumentation is devolving. That's what's going on, okay? It's getting worse as you go. You're like, really? You would think it would almost get better as you go. No, nope, it's getting worse as you go, okay? Uh, modern arguments. And then. You have postmodern arguments, right? If you hear postmodern, you're like, okay, it's got to be bad when you get to postmodern, right? Postmodern arguments, wisdom from self, okay? Wisdom from self. Uh, why is it devolving? Well, why would you think? Be? Because what they're, the friends are being forced to face a reality they've never really con- uh, thought of before. And so as they push their arguments against Job, Job is defeating them w- systematically one by one. And they have to resort to what? Worse arguments. And eventually it shows... It's a sham. Their arguments are a sham. Then Elihu comes on the scene, and I would kind of call this wisdom from self-restraint. So uh, Elihu really waits his time and then communicates and also is telling Job to have his own self-restraint. Hold on, Job. Don't be so critical of God and demand your day in court with him. You have to wait for God to respond. And that may not happen in your lifetime. But it did happen in his lifetime. And God does come on the scene, doesn't he? He just doesn't give him all the answers he's looking for. And then finally, the last part, wisdom received. So we see Job receive this wisdom. And you see the outcome as a result of that. Okay. For now, that's where the slides stop for Job. And I'm going to leave this up here because we're going to start walking through this a little bit. I I informed you that I'm going to try with each of these books to walk through the book quickly in the short time that we have. because I I think that's really helpful, not just to give you an intro to the book, but actually to walk through it a little bit and understand some of the content here. So let's kind of go back to God is right in heaven and kind of go to that scene, the scene that we're probably more familiar with with Job. Uh, You can open up your Bibles to Job chapter 1. You know how it starts out. And, you know, think about this. Like These are like the first words ever coined for the Bible. There was a man in the land of Uz, and Job was his name. And that man was blameless and upright in a fear of God and turning from evil. (coughs) Do you have a... It's, it's, a, it's a classic way you would start even a movie. I mean, you just kind of have the setting of a guy that's just there. And you have a quick description of who he is. And it's just kind of like this, you know, it's kind of like that perfect scene. You know, it's like, okay, you got this guy. He's, he's wise. He's godly. Everything's going well. He's rich. Um, it's purposefully designed that way. Everything is good. Things are the way that they're supposed to be. Because everything's about ready to go into what? Chaos sets up for a great story very compelling story for us and the the heavenly courtroom scene you know begins there uh and i know i'm gonna have to move quickly through this so i'm gonna sorry if i'm skipping around and you know there might be details you're like why didn't you cover that part i know i uh, there's just a lot to cover here um notice how when god and satan start to interact who talks first in that conversation Can you see it? It's God. In fact, Satan never initiates a conversation with God. That's important. This is not a duel between two different supernatural powers. This is God is in full control over everything, and the sons of God, that would be the angelic realm, come and present themselves. They're coming to what? Give an account of themselves. Where have you been? What have you been doing? This is the king, basically, with all of his servants. What are you doing? And God initiates it, which means this whole plan of Job's suffering. Who is this? Whose plan is this really? This is God's plan. This is God's. This is not Satan's plan. Satan. God wants Satan to believe that this is his plan. But it's actually God's very clever. This is God is using this for his own purposes far beyond Satan's wildest dreams far beyond anyone's wildest dreams until it's written down and now we know okay God always initiates this conversation with Satan don't fall into the charismatic trap that God and Satan are two different cosmic beings that are kind of equal with each other that is not the case at all in Job or anywhere in the Bible notice also that as you know um, Satan wants certain things to happen to Job uh, God says, yes, let's let's do that. This is what we're going to, yep, you're going to do that. And and Satan can only do it if God tells him, yes, you can do that. Um, and so he does it. And notice how there's a refrain that keeps happening. Now, this is very interesting. This is like impossible. It's, it's so coincidental. It almost seems impossible unless it's what? Intentional. It's intentional. In verse 16, You can see how it says, while he was still speaking, also another one came and said, yeah? And then verse 17, and while he was what? Still speaking, another one came and said, right? Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another one came and said. Now, what sometimes commentators want to do is like, well, you know, it was probably maybe the same day. Maybe it was the next day. You know, this is kind of an exaggerated hyperbole, right? No, no, no. This is timed. This is intentional. Satan didn't just... Let's just take everything away from Job over the next three months. Right? I mean, that would be devastating. Yeah? Take everything away from him. No. He's doing it with precision and timing. I want him to receive the news at such the time that as he's just trying to digest that information while this guy's speaking, another guy comes. It's coming at him, bam, 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 and all three messengers or four messengers are standing there telling him everything all at the same time. This is to be the greatest blow to Job possible because the whole point is, can we get Job to curse God and turn against him? That's the whole point. Can we get him to turn against God? And what's interesting is that the attack that Satan devises, and God knows this, but is to frame God. Satan doesn't want Job to know that he exists. That's the whole point. Satan doesn't really know the whole heavenly realm and what's going on with the angelic beings anyways. They don't have revelation on that. So the whole point is to treat it as though God is the one that's causing the affliction to Job. Satan wants to frame God. And you can see that really clearly with the terminology that's used. Like, for instance, in verse 15, it says that, um, the, the Sheba is the, is the terminology that's actually used in my text. Sheba is actually, is a, is a nation that fell and then they took some of the, the, the youths and some of the, the people among them. And then look at verse 16, you know, while someone was speaking, another one came and he said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Do you see that? See how they use that word fell again? It falls. And then you also see it in verse 19 that there were others that fell upon the use and they died. This falling gives the idea of what? From almost like from heaven to what? To earth. And it's especially communicated in verse 16. Fire of what? God. Not fire of Satan. Not fire of heavenly beings or angels. Fire of God came down. So who's being framed? God. Right? That's important. Satan is trying to get Job to turn against God. And God's like, okay, let's try this. Let's see how this goes. And here's what's incredible. God wants to be framed. That's incredible. Now, this is what blowing, would blow Satan's mind. You know, obviously, he, Satan knows this now. But Satan is being set up. Satan thinks he's setting God up. And God is so intelligent, he's setting, he's using Satan against himself, and, and he's actually setting Satan up, and God wants to be framed, because the point of this story is not about this scene here, it's about what God's going to do to get Job and his friends to start this debate, God wants this to happen, he wants it to appear as though he is the one that's causing this turmoil because he wants them to start to ask these questions. Does God really do this to people, especially to those who are righteous, relatively speaking? Why would God cause Job's to suffer like this? You know, obviously, we understand our theology and every man is a sinner, but uh, we're going to talk about later how, but why why would God want someone to suffer who is more righteous than someone else who doesn't suffer like that. Why does the righteous suffer more than the wicked, especially to such a degree that Job had to suffer? That's hard to understand if you don't understand what's going on with God's plan. And this is so compelling. Verse 15, you have falling. Verse 16, the fire of God falls. Verse 19, there's more falling. Yes. And then what's the whole point? Satan wants Job to fall in despair. But what happens? Look at verse 20. Then Job rose up and he tore his garment and he shaved his head. And then what? He fell. And you're like, he fell in despair. No, he fell and he what? Worship. That's a play on words. That's designed. He fell, and then he worshipped. Satan, you're wrong. You're wrong. God is right in heaven. That's point, that's, that's point A of God being right in heaven, because there's a second scene in chapter 2. Okay, God, so the first scene would then was like, what's different? What, why are there two scenes here? Because the first one sets up for the fact that God is right with the externals with related to Job. Uh, Everything that is external to him falls and dies, basically. And um, everything external that's good, basically, is taken away. So then you get into the second scene in chapter 2. And Satan, um, we know that Satan lost because (laughs) in verse 2, it says, you know, God says to Satan, where where have you where have you been Where are you going And what have you been doing Basically And Satan answers And he says Well He says the exact same thing that he said the first time Well I've been running around the earth kind of thing And it's like Why Why is that mentioned again Because he basically Satan had to kind of like sheepishly sheepishly go and just do the same thing he was doing and just be like Oops I lost Okay So I've got to just going to go do my own thing that I was doing again, right? Uh, so we know he, he lost there. And, and it's really interesting because God wants to get under <laughs> Satan's skin here. It'd be like, so what have you been doing, Satan, recently? And he's like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. You know, like, don't ask me what happened. You know, that kind of thing. And, and again, who brings up Job? Just like in the first scene, it wasn't Satan that brings up Job. It's God. Have you considered my servant Job? God wants this to happen to Job. There's something going on here that Job or God wants this to take place. So he brings up Job, and and uh, Satan's like, "Okay, well, skin for skin, you know. Okay, he's be willing to sacrifice his other things, perhaps, but not his very soul, not his very life. If we could somehow affect him internally and affect his very life as though he's going to die." then he would be willing to curse you. So God says, okay, let's, let's see if you're right about that. So then that's where the debate goes. Uh, and, <coughs> and we know that the sickness that, that Job gets here is so devastating that it probably would cause someone to think that he would die. It almost seems like in the text, basically, that is a sickness that would normally lead to death. It should have led to death, but God is telling Satan, you can't touch him so that he will die. So there's almost like God supernaturally holding Job from dying, even though he should be dying. So it's to lead everyone to believe Job is going to die from this sickness. And we know that because his wife says, curse God and what? (laughs) Die. She knows that this is probably the end for Job. Um, (laughs) And I love Tim Hawkins' thing about that where he talks about how Um, Why did you leave Job's wife? You know, like he at least got something good. He's like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Uh, Anyways, all that to say, you can go look that one up. But um, all right. So Satan loses this one too because Job does not fall in despair, but he actually responds to his wife. Shall we accept uh, good from God, but not accept adversity? Um, which is uh, a really uh, sweet verse to me, personally, because my grandfather, when he was passing away, told my dad that. I actually wasn't alive when my grandfather passed away. But uh, it was just a difficult time. And my grandfather saw that, knew that with my dad, and, and told him, um, John, shall we accept only good from God and not adversity? And that was a really defining moment for my dad at that point, and it it helped him and encouraged him to to know that this is going this is okay, this is from the Lord. And, and then he passed away. It was uh, from, uh, um, well, he had, I think it was from leukemia actually, is what he passed away from. So, um, but that's a that's a, an amazing statement to make when you have everything that you're losing around you, right? And 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 uh, that's where the way Job found it for himself. So now, what's interesting is that the friends come, and this is where it gets very intriguing. And you're like, well, why did they come? Well, the text says they came to comfort, yes? And I think that's partially true. Yes, they came to comfort. Um, They came to show support, yes. But the terminology here, and even the terminology later, well, definitely the terminology later, Makes it pretty clear that they're not just here to comfort necessarily Job. They're here to comfort themselves. This is really important. What are they really here for? They're here for multiple reasons. And you're like, man, these guys are bad guys. I know, but gotta put yourself in their shoes and recognize we can do this a lot too, don't we? I mean, we have multiple motives for why we do things when we're here to help someone. Uh, But sometimes we have hidden agendas in our heart and we're like, but I also want to know something about this as it affects me. Because they want to ensure that Job sinned. Yeah? They want to know that that happened. They want to make sure that that happened. Why? Why would that... Why would that be what they need to make sure of? Because if Job didn't sin, then this disaster that happened to him could what? Happen to them. Happen to them. That's the point. That's why they're there. And, it, and their, their communication with each other and to Job makes it abundantly clear that that is a greater reason for why they're there than to comfort him, right? Because their words turn from what? Comfort to what? S- disaster and sour really quick, right? It's, it, it goes really bad, really fast. And Job and his friends believe in what's called the divine retribution principle. You're welcome, you can write that down if you want, because that's kind of a terminology that's used by um, commentators and so forth. Very important term, okay? Divine retribution principle. Divine retribution principle. What that means is basically God repays good to those who do good, and God repays bad or evil to those who do evil. Yeah? It should make sense. That's kind of a pretty standard way that we think about justice, right? That's, that is justice. God repays good to those who do good, and God repays evil to those who do evil. That's the divine retribution principle. <coughs> and um, before we get on the backs of these, these guys for believing in this, first off, Job believed this too. Don't believe that Job didn't believe. It. He absolutely believed this. He he starts to question it though, after he suffers, suffering quote unquote unjustly. Yes, he starts suffering. We would say maybe unjustly, and you're like, man, what? Uh, he actually. Uh, believes in this divine retribution principle, so this is this is interesting um, that he's now beginning to question this. But his friends believe this too. His wife believes this for sure because she believes, hey, we've done all this good, we've been godly, and all of a sudden God turned against us, so God can't be trusted anymore. Um, The divine retribution principle, by the way, is a good thing for us to believe as well. It's the very foundation of what justice is all about. That's why we have a justice system. You repay what? Good to those who do good and evil to those who do evil. This is not a bad thing. In fact, Job and his friends are really believing in the kind of justice that we are all looking forward to in the millennial kingdom, yes? that's exactly what we want so this is not a bad principle to believe in but here's the issue the divine retribution principle is not a satisfactory way to explain everything that goes on in life does it because what happens in life the righteous suffer and what happens in life the wicked prosper oh this is more complicated this is a lot more complicated The point is, is that without God's revelation, not even the brightest minds on the planet can explain what God's purposes are, especially when good people suffer evil. Or I should even say going beyond that, when good people suffer way more than those who do evil things. How do we explain that? And so that's why... Everyone needs their Bible because the Bible is going to explain why the righteous need to suffer, (laughs) and I'm going to say need to suffer, and why wicked often prosper. There's a there's a reason why, and that's why you know Job kind of acts like a like an introductory film it's you know I, I know i use lord of the rings illustrations a lot but i can't find a better one than this but it's really job is like the hobbit to the you know the hobbit is the preliminary story to the lord of the rings trilogy that is kind of how job it sets up the case for why we need the rest of the story or sometimes you'll see this in movies where you have like a compelling scene you're kind of dropped into the middle of a movie or in the middle of a scene i should say and you're kind of trying to figure out, okay, so who's this character? What's he doing? Why is he on the run? You know, that kind of thing. And, and it's like, it sets up this kind of like 10-minute scene that's a really compelling thing. And it kind of ends like, wow, that's, that was incredible. What a, what a crazy scene. And then the title of the film comes into, the, comes into view. And then the rest of the story takes place. Joe would be like that first 10 minutes. That's kind of the idea. It's like, wow, this is really compelling. What's going on here? This is why you need the rest of the film to understand how this is all going to play out in the end alright so the question then is why does God then allow for the righteous to suffer especially more than the wicked why is that that's the point here and Job is not supposed to know the answer to this and the question is why why is that the case because this is incredible God's plan in history is to break the divine retribution principle this is incredible this is, this is what's the most mind-blowing thing about Job I think of anything is that God's plan is to break the divine retribution principle you say well how is that why? Why is it God's plan to break the divine retribution principle? Especially because the divine retribution principle is indicating that God is righteous, that he awards good to the good and and bad to the bad. Why would God do the reverse? And I think if if you're tracking with me, you should know where this is going because there's one pinnacle moment in all of history where the most righteous one suffered the greatest for the wicked. You see that? Job is setting you up for the very cornerstone of the gospel itself. Why do people, righteous people suffer? Why do they even have to suffer? Because God is going to break the divine retribution principle to save wicked people. That's why. So that's, this is why everybody's confounded because like God is a righteous God. Why would he allow for this? And it's like, because... There's more to the story that you need to know, and it's the gospel. And God's not going to reveal everything at this point, which makes them just to. they're forced to sit on the edge of their seats waiting for God to reveal these things, which is incredible. But that is what the fear of the Lord is all about. That is exactly what the fear of the Lord is. That's why all history, we see righteous people suffer. We see wicked people prosper because God is in the business of rescuing sinners. So you can kind of see how I think how Job really sets up for the plan of God. Uh, And aren't you thankful to actually now know these things? Yeah? You actually know this. You know why righteous people suffer. And it's actually for your good. Now, Paul just capitalizes on this. Knowing this, you know, knowing that we suffer, it, is, it magnifies the grace of God in our lives. And it associates us with Christ. It associates us with him. And because of that, we get all of his blessings because of that. And by the way, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is all about. And um, again, I I tie these books together, but they're so connected, actually. It's really interesting. All right, so we need to run through this really quick. Uh, The three friends. Let me kind of give you a little synopsis on how these these three friends work, okay? Eliphaz has a certain way of doing things, and so does Bildad, and so does Zophar. And Eliphaz is really um, the historian of the three, he really looks at history and the historical examples, uh, and so he goes to the past. Well, Job, do you remember how this happened? You know, back in this time, you know, and that kind of thing, and how you know the the, the good people were saved because they were good, and you know, and, and just kind of giving you a general scenario. But that's kind of the idea. He looks at historical examples. Bill Dad, and again, they they do, they do a little bit of a cross. Like sometimes Bill Dad might talk about a historical thing or something, but generally speaking, Bill Dad talks about. Uh, scientific kind of things or observations in creation and biology and plants and animals and things like that. So he kind of is approaching it more from um, wisdom from science and from what you can see in the created order. And then Zophar is kind of like your resident philosopher expert. He kind of goes into the um, the heavenly realm and the logical realm. If this, then this must be true. And, uh, and so, or you could even call him maybe a religious zealot. You know, he, he's, that's kind of his, he's a very passionate guy. <coughs> and so he speaks very philosophically. And so it's interesting because Job's situation has put Job into a different scenario than he's ever been before. And he's. He wouldn't have ever argued with his friends on these points until now. Now he's like, but in my case, if I'm honest with myself, my conscience is clear, I haven't done anything wrong, and all of these things still happen to me. And he begins to systematically pick them apart because they're not willing to accept that testimony. So be, Job begins to start to think about, okay, I need to remember back, in my experiences in life. Because I, too, have looked at life and said, oh, God pretty much always blesses the the righteous and always curses the wicked. But he starts to think through his memory and realizes, no, there are things that I have intentionally overlooked to hold that position. I've overlooked certain scenarios that I've forgotten about. Like, there were instances where the orphans and the widows were afflicted and situations in which a, a, a wicked person gained so much wealth and, and, and he did it by means of wicked gain and, and it's interesting how the human mind shoves away evidence that doesn't comply with the view that you hold and that's exactly what Job realizes so as he does that he begins to systematically pick apart their view and their arguments and say well have you considered this counterexample?" and they can't they can't fit that in they, they, they can't do that and so that's what starts to advance their argumentation as they go back and forth and back and forth it was Job and then Eliphaz speaks and then Job and then Bildad speaks and then Job and then Zophar speaks and then Job and then they do another round in chapter 15. They And, and the, the arguments at that point, they degrade because they don't really have good answers for that. So they, they kind of make assumptions in heaven, and that's the pre-modern arguments. They start talking about things, uh, assumptions about God. This is how God works. This is what God does. We, we know that that's true just because we we know that that's true. And even Eliphaz is like, I know that's true because I had my own personal experience with a spirit that told me that these, this is how things work. And And but then the, the counterexamples force them to say, okay, we can't account for that counterexample, so now we've got to move into other argumentation that's kind of more observational in life. And those are the modern arguments. That's kind of like um, the, the scientific movement or the Enlightenment period of our, of our historical age in the 1700s. Okay, we're going to stop we're going to pull away from the Catholic Church and the, and the whole church being governing over the world, so to speak, and we're going to move into more argumentation that looks at science. We're going to look at observations and empiricism, and we can, we can observe things, we can know things, and that's where our, our argumentation and our truth can really come from. But then Job breaks those things down too and realizes there are still counterexamples that they can't explain. So those are the modern arguments. And so then it degrades to the, the last tier which is the postmodern arguments, and they're basically like, you're dumb, Job, and we hate you. You know, that, that's basically where it lands. And, and it's terrible. And Job's argumentation doesn't get that bad like his friends does, but the one area that Job does go wrong is not in his argumentation and is not in his realization that the divine retribution principle is broken here, but it's just the fact that he demands his day with God. He demands his day with God not asking that God, not like, Lord, please, I pray that I have my day with you. That would be fine. Oh, I wish that that would be, the case. that's fine. No, it's, I demand my day with God. That's how, that's where he lands in chapter 31. I demand my day. And so that is, that is kind of how this gets set up with these pre-modern, modern arguments and post-modern arguments. And, and Job's last discourse which is pretty lengthy he gets very lengthy at the end and by the way Zophar bails out on the third one Okay, and we would argue like he's so frustrated with Job he doesn't even want to talk anymore kind of thing alright that's kind of implicit in the text we don't really know what happened with Zophar there but uh, presumably he does not even speak because he's just fed up with Job uh, you know uh, Pastor Tom Patton there at Grace Community Church actually taught through the whole book of Job, and it was incredible. Um, his his view of that is just, Zophar just walked away. He just, like, I'm done. Like, I'm not even going to be part of this conversation anymore. Uh, but Job gets really lengthy at the end of the discourse here. And, um, and it spans from chapter, I think it's chapter 24, or 26 through 31, I think is what it is. So it's pretty long. Uh, and, and that's where he kind of gets his demanding attitude uh, at the end. But in the middle of that is chapter 28. It's chapter 28, and I would say this is a very high point for Job in one sense. And uh, we saw this a little bit last time. But remember he gives that analogy of going into the, into the mountains, dr- d- drilling deep into the earth. They did these kind of things back then, just as we do today. And we wonder and marvel that they could actually do that. They, they could actually be miners for gold and for precious uh, artifacts and jewels and so forth and he says yeah you can make painstaking efforts to seek these things out and if you do it long enough and hard enough you might just get something really valuable at the end of the day you might find something precious that took you 60 years to find but he says Wisdom, where can that be found? You can't drill into the earth and find it. You can't ascend into the sky, into the heavens and find it. You cannot find wisdom like this. And Job's right. Job's right. That's where I think his conclusion comes to a pinnacle here. You cannot find wisdom apart from God. You can't. And so Job 28, 28 is the defining phrase, Behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. In other words, waiting for God. Desperate for Him. You're desperate for what He's going to reveal. That's the fear of God. Totally dependent upon Him. So... That's where he kind of lands, but he also lands in a demanding attitude toward God. I need my day with God. And Elihu comes in chapter 32 and has a lengthy discourse that pretty much matches the length of Job's there at the end. And again, he comes out of nowhere, and uh, he begins by saying, you know, I'm young. I, I have waited for you to speak. And He's angry at the three friends and he's angry at Job and he has reason for both but they're different reasons for Job it's because he's demanding his own day in court with God with the three friends it's because they could not satisfactorily answer Job they they were accusing Job falsely and they didn't have any reason to do that and Elihu's right on both counts so that's why he goes after Job and that's why he goes after the three friends and um he basically says, wait for God. Wait for God to reveal your righteousness, Job. I know that you believe that you are righteous, but you're demanding your day as though I can't have it any other way. I'm going to die if I don't get my day in court with God. And Elihu says, you need to wait. You need to wait and let God justify you. You can't justify yourself, even though your conscience is clear. And this is what Paul really picks up on, right? In 1 Corinthians 4, Um uh, you know, my conscience is clear, but I'm not acquitted by this. But who acquits me? The Lord. Yeah? You can see how Paul uh, understands the proper perspective there. And so Elihu's saying, hey, listen, we need to be honest with ourselves. We don't know when we really don't know, okay? If we don't know something, we need to be honest. And the three friends should have said, Joe, we don't know why this has happened to you, but we're not going to make assumptions that you sinned. If you say you, ha- you haven't sinned, we're going to have to assume we don't know everything that God's up to in this. Uh, our presuppositions about the divine retribution principle may be flawed. There may be something that God is doing that's far beyond our wildest dreams, a.k.a. see the gospel. Yes? See the gospel. All right, and then God shows up. And this is awesome because you may be familiar with a lot of this, uh, the, uh, this section here in chapter 38 and following. God does not reveal the answers that Job is necessarily asking, but what does reveal the answers? The Bible. Yes. The questions that Job is asking, they're all really answered in the Bible. Will I rise again? Yes. How can a man be made right before God? See the gospel. Where can wisdom be found? From Yahweh alone. Yeah, that is found completely and totally in the gospel. Um, And so what God does is explain to Job that he has all the answers. God has all the answers. And submitting to that is the fear of Yahweh. That is the fear of Yahweh. It's submitting to the fact that I have all the answers and you don't. And I may not reveal those to you right now. In other words, if you can submit to God when you don't have answers to your most burning questions, then you know that you are fearing God. If you can submit to God when you don't have answers to your most burning questions, then you know that you are fearing God. And this is why God doesn't reveal what he's doing to Job, because that's not the point. He's not going to try to reveal everything to him or, or, or do that. But the point is that God must reveal truth. And, and he is the revealer of truth, even though he might not reveal it in this time. So that must be respected, and that must be feared. And that's exactly what the fear of Yahweh is, and that's when you see the fear of Yahweh in Job, when you see the term, the fear of Yahweh, or the fear of God, or the fear of the Lord in Ecclesiastes, or you see the fear of Yahweh in Proverbs, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to this kind of expectation that God is the revealer of truth, but I don't have always all the answers because God hasn't revealed it and I am waiting for him I am dependent upon him for that so then finally in chapter 42 Job receives this wisdom he repents he retracts Uh, in the Hebrew text in chapter 42 uh, verse 6 he says literally he says I reject (laughs) I literally reject It doesn't sound very normal in English, so other terminology is sometimes used. But literally, it's kind of like either I reject myself or I reject my argument. I pull back my argument. I'm repealing it. And uh, he says, I repent. Or literally, I comfort myself. In other words, the idea is to... um, to turn and be regretful or sorry over this situation. And he does so in dust and in ashes. Uh, God rebukes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He does not rebuke Elihu, uh, which is important because obviously Elihu spoke what was right. Uh, but Elihu didn't have all the answers either, by the way. He just knew that you need to fear God. And Job then is he receives double for all he has. And then, just really quick, turn over to James chapter 5. This is, this is where we end. James chapter 5. This is where you have James talk about Job. And, you know, it, I think it's easy to assume maybe that the end of what, what God gave to Job is these, these double blessings For all he had. And that was really God being merciful and gracious. Maybe. I mean, I guess that could be the true. But notice the context here in James chapter 5 verse 7. Therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Until the what? Until the coming of the Lord. That's post what? Either post, um, well, the Lord coming. Or post death, yeah? And... Behold, uh, verse 11, behold, we regard those who endured as blessed. You heard about the endurance of Job. And the question is, what did Job endure? Well, yeah, you could say he endured suffering. I guess you could say that. But technically, the endurance of Job in the book is primarily highlighting not the endurance of his suffering because it didn't really transpire long enough for him to endure a whole lot. What what did he really endure? He endured the inquisition of of the friends. And he endured the rest of his life not knowing all the answers. Yeah? Right? The endurance of Job. And so when it says, and you know the end of the Lord. That's what it literally says. You know the outcome of the Lord or the end of the Lord. What did the Lord do for Job? In that context then, giving double blessing for all he has, does that really help Job? Is that what Job really was asking for? Is that what Job was really needing? No. So why would that be something of blessing for Job, especially since that's not the point of the book? That's not really what Job is really at up about. I just want all my stuff back. Job doesn't say that. That's not what he wants. No, he the Lord is compassionate and gracious because at the end of the book, Job dies. And then Job meets his maker. And then he gets the fuller picture of the story, which is what we're all looking for. And that's why we need the Bible. And that is the book of Job. And that is the start of this epic story, history of the Bible. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for how Job establishes the word of God for us and and, and the need for it and why why is the Bible written. And Lord God, we pray that you would help us uh, to depend upon you and upon your word more truly and more faithfully, we pray. Thank you so much that we have your word, which is sufficient And it has revealed your plan. And so Lord, give us faith even more to believe your word with great conviction. And may we worship you even that much more this morning as a result of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you everyone. Thanks for listening. And Lord, we'll see you in the service.